Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Are you suffering from climate anxiety? Climate One Conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. We all know about the environmental and physical effects of climate change, but what about its impact on our mental health? Clinical psychologist Leslie Davenport likens her patients' feelings about climate change to the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, sadness, bargaining have its versions of what it might look like in the climate world. Really what we're talking about is any kind of loss, loss of identity, loss of lifestyle, loss of environmental you know, the degradation we're talking about can trigger a very similar process. But dealing with those feelings isn't always easy, says climate psychologist Renee Lertzman. The whole topic of loss and grief and feelings, and it freaks a lot of people out. Whether your coping strategy is fight, flight, or freeze, Lertzman says we should remember that there is a spectrum, that there's strength and power in our ability to stay present with our feelings, that we won't get stuck in lost in a hole of despair and gloom. Today on Climate One, Greg Dalton talks with three experts on climate psychology. Leslie Davenport is a clinical psychotherapist and the author of Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change, a Clinician's Guide. Renee Lertzman is a climate engagement strategist and author of the book Environmental Melancholia, Psychoanalytic Dimensions of Engagement. And Bryant Welch is a clinical psychologist and the author of State of Confusion, Political Manipulation, and the Assault on the American Mind. Here's their conversation. Renee Lertzman, tell us some of the key ingredients for people who want to talk to someone else about climate change. It's a difficult topic. Some think it's like sex and politics. You don't talk about it in polite company. How should we do that? Well, I want to acknowledge at the outset that it's an incredibly challenging topic to talk about because our feelings, our um, investment in the issue runs so high, it's urgent, it's time sensitive, it has all those attributes that make it incredibly difficult to talk about um, in a productive way. And so what I've learned over years of studying with all kinds of clinicians and motivational interviewers is that the key, I think, to talking about climate change is to recognize and tune into what the others might be feeling and thinking. And so it really is more about our, the quality of how we show up and how we invite the other to reflect and speak to whatever it is they might be experiencing about the issue and learn how to hold off 
on pushing our own anxiety and sense of urgency onto the other, which will often be what the person is mainly responding to, and then you get into these charged dynamics. So the first thing I say is, you know, it's really about listening, but I don't, I don't want to minimize what that really means. There's an internal process as far as how do we enter into these interactions, whether you're a company or whether you're an individual or an organization, how can we have compassionate ways of communicating about climate? And, and I think that being able to tune in and listen and reflect and, and bring in that quality of, of again, just um, a sort of an acceptance, which paradoxically, I think, leads people into entering the topic in a new and different way. Right. And so, Leslie Davenport, uh, often there's this impulse to talking about climate to, to uh, persuade or convince people to yeah. jam a fact or an idea down someone's throat. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I need to convert you right now. Yes. Does that work? Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's reminding me of that saying that we um, smashing heads won't open minds. Uh, you know, if it's about opening to new possibilities, new ways of thinking. One thing I want to add is that, um, you know, not everyone that we're going to engage with is on this, in the same place, uh, the same level of receptivity. When I was bringing innovative programs into a medical setting, uh, I learned that there was sort of a group of people that no matter what, just weren't interested, weren't listening. There was the ones who agreed totally with the new programming, and then there was this really fertile middle ground. People who didn't quite know about it, were maybe a little skeptical, curious, uh, less familiar. And that just was a really rich area to work with. And that's where a lot of the, you know, the success could be felt of people kind of awakening to it rather than kind of necessarily going for those that just had really closed and latched the door to possibilities. Right. And according to the Yale Six Americas, studies of American public opinion, only 9 to 10% of Americans are just basically mm. never going to accept it. There's mm. a big persuadable middle that you can connect yeah. with. It might be through technology, not climate, but there's food. There's ways to connect with people where they are. Yeah. Brian Welch, um, you talk about you know disassociation and how things, people, is a defensive mechanism that when there's trauma, people People disassociate from something that they feel is uh, uncomfortable or painful. How does that apply to climate? Well, I, I think to support what Renee and Leslie are saying, it really helps if you're going to talk to another mind to understand a little bit about the mind. And if you look at the American mind, um, as I have over the last 20 years, it's, it's stunning how much it's deteriorated. <laughs> I, I can see that my need to persuade this audience is <laughs> limited. Uh, but, but if you want to do just a quick test, I, I, I did write a book 10 years ago when I talked about this, and I went back to kind of take a look at it and wrote pretty much the same book, only applied to now. If you want to have a quick litmus test of how the American mind has changed, and, I, and I'm not saying this to be, to be facile, picture... George W. Bush, and then picture Donald Trump. Now, I was appalled at George Bush and the way in which the American mind was responding at that time. But now we got Donald Trump. 
And so if you look at what's happened to the mind, I, I, you know, we, we all feel that the environment has been neglected. I, I think that's probably a safe assumption in this group. But let me tell you, nothing's been as neglected as the American mind. The mind is a very limited instrument to begin with. We've done unbelievable things to it, just like we've done to the environment. And we now have skilled political manipulators who are expert at making us crazier and crazier. So in terms of we have got to understand the mind if we're going to get a rational decision out of it. So I think when you talk about uh, listening to people and connecting with their mind, and I think, I think what you're talking about is making a connection with a person yes. which eases their anxiety unbelievably. If you listen to them, you connect with them. Once you connect with them, people are in such desperate shape, they'll get dependent on anything. They got dependent on Donald Trump because he was offering them some profound experience. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I totally agree with it, but I think there is a bigger, there, there's a bigger issue. It's not just the environment. You know, our kids are not safe to go to school. It's, it's a very, you know, we can't, we've got a second amendment and we can't figure out a way to keep guns out of school. So my argument is that we have to, all of these issues have to, we have to be looking at the American mind itself uh, because it's really been abused over the last, over the last 20, 25 years in, in a number of ways. And we'll get talk later a little bit about how climate is a symptom of some broader things and connected to other things. Uh, you mentioned anxiety. Lisa Van Susteren is a Washington, D.C. psychologist who specializes on how people feel about the future of climate impacts. Pre-traumatic stress disorder is a subset of climate anxiety. There is a subset of people who are very focused on future harm and uh, have intrusive thoughts about it and may have had seen their moods and thoughts affected by it. And sometimes they might know they're anxious, but they don't know why. And they will say they can't sleep or they're sleeping too much, they've lost their appetite or they've gained weight. Certainly the angry outbursts, the fears, uh, the ongoing feeling of dread, of hopelessness, these are all signs. When we think about future injuries to future generations, there's an, a fear that uh, is generated. And this is a profoundly uh, distressing state. I have no doubt now, especially uh, considering recent events. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, everyone is now engaged in some form or has some form of climate anxiety. Lisa Van Susteren, the Washington, D.C. psychologist. Um, let's say Davenport, is that true? Do you agree that everyone has some level of climate anxiety? Whether, whether they realize it or not? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing, whether they realize it or not. I'm starting to notice in my practice that sometimes people come in with ambient anxiety. They're just more distressed, even if they haven't always connected the dots about why. And that's what I'm trying to do is also introduce it more into the mental health field to bring those questions in and um, help people see where that is. Um, you know, and related to this, you know, it feels like all of you who are here are here because of your interest in this already. And um, 
that as we learn how to talk about it more effectively, I just want to introduce the idea that all of us can take a leadership role in whatever sphere of influence your life lives in. We don't all have to write books. We don't all have to sit up on a stage. But if we're looking... Or march in a march. Or march in a march, which is wonderful, and I do that too. But yeah, to redefine what is leadership and to redefine what is advocacy, that if you're uh, responding and looking through the lens of we are interconnected and I stand for a just and sustainable future, how will that influence the words that come out of your mouth and the things that you choose to do and the lifestyle you choose to lead? And that will be a guide that can very powerfully ripple out mm. in a lot of directions. I want to, can I follow Renee, on that? Me. I think that what you're saying relates to, are we all, is everyone experiencing eco-anxiety? Um, what I've noticed is the tendency for those who are very engaged and concerned is to have a perception or an assumption that a lot of people don't care because if they did care more, then they would be doing what I'm doing, which is coming to events like this and and doing the various things we try to do. And I think that's a, um, that's a very, it's an inaccurate assumption that for a lot of people, this is sort of in that, like you said, an, an ambient kind of anxiety. And I think one of the most powerful ways we can express the leadership that I, I think you're talking about is by sparking different kinds of interactions and conversations in our lives. Mm -hmm. To, to create the context where we have permission to go there, to name, to talk about. I mean, evidence-based psychology supports the fact that having conversations and interactions is the driving force for behavior change. And so when people say to me, well, that all sounds great, Renee. We don't have time to have conversations. That sounds very kind of t not scalable. We don't need talk. We need action. Yeah, exactly. It makes zero sense to me. For one thing, <laughs> humans are social beings and we are interacting all the time in our organizations, our schools, our churches, our our social media, whatever there's, we are interactive social beings. The quality of that interaction makes all the difference. And if more of us were skilled and tuned into how to do that more effectively, and again, I think it comes back to compassionate co communication. Even if you're running a political campaign, mm -hmm. it can be empathetic and it can be compassionate, which I think relates to Brian's work, right? Which is yes. the lack of that gross kind of generalization, not to be too simplistic, has led to what we're seeing, which is that um, there's this fear and anxiety that's just been simmering under the surface. Well, what if we actually start yeah. communicating in a more skillful way? I, you know, I, I think it is astonishing. I mean, it's startling. I've been doing psychotherapy now for 40 plus years. And I'm always, it's, it's a constantly renewing realization that when people are listened to, it is a very unusual experience for them and, and a very powerful experience for them. Yeah. And uh, the, the human connection that comes from that is being torn asunder all across our society. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, families are broken up. There, there are now more children who grow up missing one of their biological parents than grow up with both parents. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the dissociation, disconnection, and ultimately the dehumanization that results from that 
is astonishing. Uh, and it's not, it's not just anxiety and trauma. Mm-hmm. A lot of it has happened. Uh, you know, I think Renee, more than anyone, opened my awareness to, uh, you know, to the environmental melancholia with the look at what, what's happened in Green Bay uh, in terms of environmental deterioration. It's depression. There is loss. Mm-hmm. And when you connect with someone in these kinds of conversations that uh, environmentalists are, are now talking about, I think, very, very wisely, it's, it is stunning the impact it has on the person being listened to. I mean, what you all are doing for me right now is wonderful. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that we need to learn how to listen, that these are skills we can actually be supporting and cultivating in ourselves. I mean, HuffPo did a listening tour around the country last summer, I think, and I went out and did a training with them, which struck me as very odd because they were journalists, and I would have thought, okay, that's what they do, but they actually, we, we need support to learn how to listen, especially in such charged, you know, um, environments. So um, what we live in a culture of avoidance, you know, take a pill, distract yourself, don't, don't feel that grief or pain. So I want you, uh, Leslie Davenport, to, to tell us about the climate grief cycle, the five stages of, of climate grief that you, you write about. Well, first, I just want to clarify that sometimes when we think about grief, because uh, some of the early models, like with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Uh, were developed around when someone dies. And that really what we're talking about is any kind of loss, loss of identity, loss of lifestyle, loss of environmental, you know, the degradation we're talking about can trigger a very similar process. And so I was overlaying what that looks like uh, when it relates to struggling with the losses that are around climate change. And truthfully, it's less important to look at the stages as it is to recognize that there is a purposefulness to the feelings. There's a sanctity to pain. It's kind of like if there's a pain in our body, it's telling us something that we need to attend to. If a signal light comes on in our car, it's saying, hey, look, something's going on here. And as you were saying, in our culture, we tend to shut down and want to erase the pain. And not that we want to reside there, but we need to recognize what's the message, which helps us move through these different ways that it shows up. And so, you know, denial, anger, sadness, bargaining have its versions of what it might look like um, in the climate world. Um, But the most important part is underneath that, making room for the emotional landscape that accompanies this experience so that we can attend to what's happening with more of ourselves instead of investing so much energy at keeping the feelings at bay. I'd like to to (laughs) sort of underscore that because I think uh, the attention... One of, the, one of the fascinating things for me as a mental health professional, I spent most of my life on the East Coast. I've been out here maybe eight years or so. The, the, the kind of interdisciplinary, the cross-cultural blending of, of, Eastern, uh, of Eastern thinking with Western psychology is really an incredibly explosive coming together. And when you're talking about attending, what what 
those trainings, I think, are really all about is increasing our capacity for awareness. Yeah. And so when you're talking about do you, uh, you know, how many of these things can you look at, it really is a pretty good measure of mental health, mm-hmm. how big your cup of awareness is. And what meditation does is it expands one's capacity yeah. to do that. And increasingly, it's becoming clear that really is mental health. And it leads to a lot better, a lot more efficient functioning mm-hmm. and, and a lot more uh, wisdom. Mm-hmm. I just want to add that I think that there's tremendous confusion right now in the climate community, if I can call it that, around how to relate with the emotional spectrum that this is bringing up. And as you were speaking, I was imagining the climate folks that I know, the whole topic of loss and grief and feelings, and it freaks a lot of people out. And it's probably freaking out some people listening right now to think, oh, come on, like, we've got the solutions, Project Drawdown, you know, positivity, storytelling, hope, you know, all of that. And I think that we've got to cut through the confusion and bring in some actual grounded psychological expertise and insight into how we we understand this work, which is that there, there is a spectrum, that there's strength and power in our ability to stay present with our feelings, that we won't get stuck and lost in a hole of despair and gloom and and, you know, that it's actually folks like yourselves who work with people on a day-to-day basis, you know from your experience that these things change at a lightning pace when we give a little bit of attention, a little bit of listening. We, as humans, we just, we move on to the solutions or we move on yeah, into something. Right. But you've got to pause. We've got to have some kind of a reflection of and empathy for, you know, this is painful. This is hard. And that's healthy. That's okay to name it. We won't stay there forever. I think there are a lot of ways of building resiliency. You know, we tend to think of resiliency as being able to bounce back from a difficult situation, but I think it's more than that. I think we can proactively say, um, I'm going to stand for and choose the values that I want to live by related to climate even with what's going on. In other words, it's not just dealing with the feelings, but there's a resiliency in empowered action, in keeping your eyes, your heart, and your mind open um, as a way that leads to, a clears a path for um, good decision-making. Because I think part of another way of thinking about what we're talking about is if we're just trying to do climate work out of stress reactions, fight, you know, send those blogs, you know. Um, attack. Yeah, attack. Um, mm-hmm. Or flight, this is too hard, I'm just going to go disappear. Um, or freeze, just don't know what to do because it's too big. That's what we're talking about is how can we not get caught in that. It's natural we're going to feel it, but how can we process it so that we are centered and grounded when we speak, when we act, when we manage our lives and our relationships with each other? Renee Lurtzman, I'd like to ask uh, about denial. It's a viable, necessary coping mechanism for getting Mm -hmm. through the day. You don't go around saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, right? So tell Mm -hmm. about climate denial and its various permutations. Well, I think 
climate denial is actually a more nuanced than we acknowledge. Um, for one thing, there's denial and then there's disavowal. So to deny something is to literally say this is, is not real, doesn't exist. And to disavow, I think, is much more common, which is a capacity we have to, to, to basically say, I'm going to choose to not acknowledge that this is an actual reality and a problem. So I disavow when I fly. There's a certain quality where, you know, I have to do it to function, to drive. I drove here, right? Um, but the thing about denial and disavowal is they're very well-known defense mechanisms, right? If you look up any, you know, textbook on defense mechanisms, you've got denial and disavowal and dissociation. And I think, I think that's a very powerful reframe because it takes denial out of being a thing, a concretized kind of like climate denial. I think there's some issues with that, actually, because it's not investigating. It's not inquiring into what is this really about? What is this symptomatic of? And, and I, I don't pathologize in my work, but in my experience, denial is a symptom of profound anxiety, profound, you know, uh, uncertainty. It reflects a difficulty in tolerating ambiguity, uncertainty, um, all of those things that as humans, we really struggle. I think this relates to Leslie's work around resilience. Um, and so I'd love to see us relate with denial, ideally with compassion. And that does not mean acceptance or getting off the hook. It means, oh, okay, there's some pain going on here. There's something going on. How can I how can I serve and support? Um, and I'm not talking, this is not the same as dealing with the industry and the oil industry. I mean, I'm not, it's, it's like a, a different situation. I think we're talking about the majority middle that you were talking about, which I think is in some kind of low-grade denial. I think there's a lot of low-grade melancholia, low-grade denial. And one of the most powerful ways of working with that can be to, again, bring out and acknowledge this can be really hard. You know, in, in my fantasy, I'd like to see more climate scientists and communicators coming out of the gate saying, look, you know, I wish as much as you did that this was not happening, that this didn't exist. I'd rather be doing something else right now. This is kind of sucky, you know, um, <laughs> but here we are. And now we've got an opportunity to figure out what to do. But that little piece I believe can actually cut through and disarm that tendency to want to create the distance and to deny and disavow by, and it, it's, it's simple, but it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's tricky, but just name it. And then, you know, now we can have a conversation or get to work basically. Brian Welch, I think that some people get to denial or disavow. I'm not, you know, either or diminishing because they look at climate and say, Wow, that's big. It's scary. I don't know what I can do. Maybe I'll change my light bulbs or not eat, change my diet a little bit. And then they kind of put it away because they park it because it's just so overwhelming. You get swallowed by it. No, that's what's happening to the American mind. It's what happens when you talk about uh, uh, environmental terror. It's what they experience when they deal with economic terror, which is rampant throughout uh, the Midwest where I grew up. And uh, uh, so the mind, the big task of the mind is to create one's reality sense, to give us what at least feels to us like a coherent sense of what's real and what's not. And it's much more important to us that we have a, a sense that we know what's real than that that sense be accurate. Mm -hmm. So 
And the more anxious people get and the more threatened they feel in their ability to do that, the more your denial gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. So this is what you see with the incongruous reactions people have to Donald Trump. You know, it really doesn't matter what he does. When he says he could go walking down Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and no one would blame him, he's right. He's got it. That's exactly what he knows. He's created an enthralled state around these very weak American minds that, that yeah. have to deny and have to pretend and, and, and adhere this kind of blind obeisance to a, uh, to a leader. So it is denial, and the sicker people get, the more pronounced and the more striking the denial is. You look at the the propaganda of the Bush administration, and then you look at the propaganda of the, of the Trump administration. In retrospect, what the Bush administration had to do to sell its environmental messages, the Clear, Clear Skies Initiative, I think it was called, uh, then you compare that with what Donald Trump has to say. He just says, hey, I don't believe it. <laughs> Boom, done. That's, that's how more simple the mind is and how thick the denial is as the minds are scared and retreat and move back from reality. So I'm having a flashback moment when I was sitting up here a, a few weeks ago with Arlie Hochschild, who wrote, mm -hmm. You're Strangers in Their Own Land. Tremendous amount of empathy. She went to Louisiana and talked with people and listened mm -hmm. and did uh, what Renee advises, you know, didn't talk, didn't interrupt, just listened. But I'm wondering, Bryant Welch, whether what you just said has a whiff of coastal elitism looking down at the simple people in the middle. Well, I, I, um, <laughs> I, I <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I, I do think that everyone is being very careful to not differentiate different degrees of mind. I'm not talking about differences in terms of conservative liberal. I, I worked for a Republican congressman. Uh, it was a long time ago. Uh, but there are good, solid, intellectually challenging arguments that can be made to support a conservative political agenda. But that's not what we've got here now. We've got, we've got craziness. And, 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 and I do think it, it, does, not, it does not help to uh, call it something other than, than what it is. And is there an elitism? Well, Jesus Christ, if we think we're elite, we're doing a pretty bad job of leading. Uh, so um, I think there's a difference, a qualitative difference in the minds. And I don't think it translates into being liberal or conservative. I think it, it translates into how much denial are you using? Well, and, and I don't think the environment is a fictitious issue. Uh, you know, we see some commentators calling, saying that liberals are more hysterical. This is not what I view as hysteria. I think it's very real. I think when children get killed in school, that's very, very real. If you're just joining us, we're talking about climate psychology at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Leslie Davenport, a clinical psychologist and author of Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change. Renee Lertzman, psychologist and consultant, author of Environmental Melancholia. And Bryant Welch, a clinical psychologist and author of State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American mind. Uh, Leslie Davenport, Brian Welch mentioned children. I'd like to, you know, often climate is invoked as what about the children? This is really scary for kids. How mm -hmm. can people talk about climate in a real way to 
I mean, the younger someone is, the longer they're going to be living with a disrupted climate. I've looked at seven-year-olds in the eye and said, I can't really come to tell them how mm -hmm. difficult I think it's going to be. So what's your mm -hmm. advice on how to mm -hmm. be authentic with children about climate future? Well, the main thing I would say, I, I don't feel like I have the answers to all of that. I think we're discovering that as we go. But this idea of building resiliency in from early, early on, there, luckily there are some schools starting to include things like mindfulness programs mm -hmm. are becoming much more common, not necessarily all around the environmental issues, but just that capacity to be present with uh, thoughts and feelings as they arise rather than just being sucked into them. The earlier those are learned, the easier it is to build that and rely on that more consistently. So that's certainly mm -hmm. a step in the right direction. And I, I would just Pretty add that um, one, one way I've thought about this is the frame or the narrative that we as humans are figuring out how to be humans and how to right. live on the planet. And we haven't always gotten things right. Mm -hmm. And here we are. And we have, I mean, that's kind of my, that's basically my interpretation of our yes. ecological climate crisis is we didn't intend for this to happen, that we mm -hmm. made a lot of progress. There's been a lot of benefits. We've learned a lot. And now we've discovered that this isn't really working too yeah. well. And now we've got this opportunity to do what humans do so well, which is to, to grow and create and innovate and be in, have ingenuity and, you know, to really highlight that this is, and Kim Stanley Robinson, the author, I heard him speak about this a few years ago where he goes even further and says to especially young people, youth, you know, this is your opportunity to make history and, you know, inviting people into a narrative where we're part of something bigger. Um, but it depends on the, the developmental okay, stage. Exactly. But I really love the kind of like, hey, you know, as humans, we're, we're figuring it out, and you're part of that, right? Mm -hmm. So again, it's inviting people and all of us into this story. Because the mm -hmm. other danger about, you know, with young people and the kind of projection onto people like Jane Goodall and, you know, oh, that they're out there doing that. They're the eco-heroes. Yes. Here I am in Minnesota, whatever, in some small town, and what can I possibly do? I think it's vital that we, we really work on the narrative around, look, no matter who you are and where you are, you know, you absolutely have a role to play, and it's up to you, you know, to only you really know what that is. Yes. And, um, and to invite that kind of um, reflection on what we can... But again, not being like, oh, every little thing, like mm -hmm. we have to, it's a very fine line between that kind of narrative and, you know, oh, get being kind of trite and, and simplistic about it. I bought a Prius. I'm good. I'm done. Okay. Yeah. 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 Dress my conscience. Yeah. Right. Are you, are you sincerely hopeful, Leslie, that we'll surmount this challenge? <laughs> uh, my hope lies in because being more and more aware as I get older of how much I don't know. There have been so many points in my life where I was sure about something that I've been proven wrong, that that keeps me very open to possibility. I do find it daunting because I track the science pretty closely. 
Um, so I am happily um, with the jury that's still out and want to be very much part of the story. One thing I like that Renee said, you know, sometimes in discussions like this, there's a, a certain segment that says, oh, you know, the earth will be just fine. We're just going to eject all the humans. Um, but I think evolution is more elegant than that. I think humans are part of this and evolutionarily speaking for a kind of purpose and that we are still figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And that, with that, there's an investment in the hope of what might be possible. I want to ask further about hope. Uh, Bryant Welch, uh, a lot of people say, oh, I think I should be hopeful on the, you, that I should feign optimism because that's what works. <laughs> because don't tell people really how dark it is because they'll become paralyzed. They'll, they'll turn them off. So sugarcoat it. You know, don't tell grandma how bad her, bad her cancer is uh, and she'll have a better chance of getting better. Yeah. Is that viable? No, no, I, I, I don't. I'm not a big positive psychology fan. Uh, that, that being said, uh, that, that being said, I, 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 I really have never been more optimistic about what we can do with the mind now. Uh, we're really talking here about trauma and its treatment. Mm -hmm. And if, you, if we get a mind that isn't traumatized, and if we get those traumatized minds sitting around talking together, if you have connection and you have a tranquil, calmed mind, you know, we're, we, can, we can really live up to the, to the vision that uh, Renee is, is talking about. So the potential is there. And I totally with your scientists that, uh, boy, sometimes it, looks pretty good, but sometimes it looks pretty bad. And when, you know, you wake up and you're inhaling smoke, it, it's, uh, it's pretty alarming. So I think, uh, you know, with all of these, there are a lot of good things that are happening. Uh, there, there just are a lot of good things. And if we can calm the mind enough to be rational uh, and, uh, and communicate with people, yeah, we can... I, I believe that we can, uh, there's plenty of reason for optimism. Unfortunately, the uh, outcome is, is not clear. Can I just add two quick sure. things? Neither One thing. is the tendency we have to be very binary or dualistic. We tend to ping pong between the optimism and the hope and the despair. And in actuality, we, I think intuitively we know that that's not, that's not real, right? That it's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to see us supporting one another and really holding that that place that's sort of in between. Um, the other thing I want to say based on, you know, following on what you said is I want us to acknowledge that at the same time that we're learning more about our ecological impacts and climate crisis, we are also experiencing a tremendous revolution of of insight into the mind. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's phenomenal. So neuroscience and trauma studies and attachment theory and contemplative practices Absolutely. are exploding. Motivational interviewing. I've been doing a training here in the city that's changed my whole outlook. There is no excuse for the climate 
an environmental community to not be mining and exploiting these resources as actively as we can. And I think there's such an opportunity to be partnering between these areas of expertise. Not that we all have to go out and become experts in the psychology, yeah. but it's really exciting to me to see how the, that field is growing and presents this opportunity for new kinds of collaborations and synthesis and um, creativity. I, I, I totally agree. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing we got going for us in this is the very act of awareness is a corrective therapeutic act. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I just think all these things that are encouraging us to be aware and, and that's a word that we use every day. But when you look at what neuroscientists are doing with the concept of awareness now, you know, there's a saying, if you can name it, you can tame it. Now, there's a lot of optimism in that. And, and uh, it really does produce health, mental health, in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So I, I really think we've got 50 or 60 percent of the variance is right there in that, in that discovery. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I, I've never been more optimistic. I don't know if we're going to survive, but I've never been more <laughs> optimistic. Uh, Leslie Davenport, one of the strongest statistical correlations is between, uh, we know that, that the temperatures are rising, and uh, one of the strongest statistical correlations is between heat and human aggression. Mm -hmm. When the heat rises, there's more fights at baseball parks, the more mm -hmm. people honking their horns, mm -hmm. there's more domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. All sorts of things happen when humans get hot and cranky and angry. Mm -hmm. So the world's gonna get hotter. Mm -hmm. What do you look out towards? Like, how can people think about a more angry world and not to become one of those angry people? Yeah, well, I think in a way it's the answer to that is being spoken to about awareness. When, you know, if we enter into anything knowing a little bit more of what we might encounter, what we might expect, that's already one step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, I think also what we were talking about earlier of increasing our capacities to be present with more rather than give in. You know, what, another way of talking about this is what's called the window of tolerance. And there's a lot of, th and it's our, again, our ability to be with and be present with without being thrown off. And there's a lot of things that bring it down. Heat, being hungry, being tired, being overly stressed. And there's a lot of things that stretch it meditative practice, awareness. And when we're outside our window of tolerance, it often goes toward that aggression. It can go that direction or it can go toward disassociation and kind of checking out. But if our practice is about being aware of and expanding our window of tolerance, that's part of what we're all going to be asked to do while we're hopefully <laughs> working on the temperature and all of that as well. Leslie, would you say that applying that. Um, so it sounds like you're saying what therapists do, which is to say, look, this might, you might feel a little uncomfortable. There's going to, you can anticipate this happening, can soothe and, and um, support our resilience in navigating difficult circumstances. Could you imagine a campaign or uh, something that puts out there like, look, folks, we're in for some potentially rocky times. Um, this is what you might anticipate or expect, but here's what we can do to support ourselves and each other. Be fantastic. If you're just joining us, we're talking about climate psychology and resilience at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Bryant Welch, a clinical psychologist, also Renee Lurtzman, author of Environmental Melancholia, and Leslie Davenport, author of Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change. 
Welcome to Climate One. Uh, my name's Carter Brooks. Um, we've made some allusions to sort of a generality of the climate community. There are some generalizations around the climate community that work against all the things we're talking about here. And so my question to all the panelists is, what are your personal sort of pet peeves that if you could tell all, all, in a general sense, stop doing this or, or stop reinforcing this idea, what would those be? Renee Lertzman, you think a lot about scaling messaging, and if you were to advise you know, uh, a, a politician, head of a state, that sort of thing, on, on policy communication, what would you say? So I do have a lot to say about that, so I'm going to try to Okay. Um, I guess the main thing I would say is to stop... So you see, it's very easy for me to do it, right? It's, it's, what I'm advising is that we stop telling people to stop doing things. <laughs> so, um, but what concerns me a lot about the climate community, I know it's not a generalized group, is the tendency to speak at and to people, mm -hmm. one, to, to not design genuinely, conversationally, invitationally oriented campaigns and initiatives, um, to rely on polling data that's very blunt and very limited, that keeps us at a certain level that doesn't really go deeper as far as the anxiety and the ambivalence and the aspiration. Um, and I think that there's some inherent, um, there's so much frustration and anger, I think, within folks working on climate that's very understandable, and that affect, that feeling can, can leak out and be very alienating mm -hmm. and has caused a lot of damage over the years. I would love to see some more self-reflection mm -hmm. on how are we working with our own um, anxiety, urgency, and frustration and do some capacity building around that so that we can actually show up and be more effective as allies, partners, facilitators, and not trying to get people. Every client I have says, how do I get people to do this? We've got to just get rid of that. How do we invite? How do we facilitate? How do we catalyze? Lots to talk about there. Um, let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Um, hi, my name is Kyle Jennings. Um, a lot of what you've been talking about here has been, um, it's all very wonderful and it's all very focused on the individual and the people you happen to interact with. But with as segregated as the country is politically and as politicized as climate change has become, if the people in this room do a little bit and we spread a little bit to the people we're going to interact with, I still don't know if that's enough to get over the fact that the Senate overrepresents rural states. What insights do you have about how we can depoliticize climate change and how these ideas can reach into the areas that people in this room aren't going to reach? Well, yeah, um, first of all, I don't I, I don't think what we're talking about is just about the individual one to one context. We're talking about basic psychological insights that can be applied in a whole number of um, media and scales and contexts. So I want to acknowledge that there are folks working within, you know, um, conservative, Republican, different, different communities that care very deeply about these issues like Catherine Hayhoe, Bob Inglis. They're, they're out there. Um, I was involved with a project that was the most exciting thing I've ever done, which was working with a Republican. I never thought I'd say that, but it really was um, where we did in-depth interviews with conservative climate skeptics 
uh, around the U.S., and we listened very carefully to what they said um, and did interviews that were very um, non-confrontational, took the primary anxieties and concerns and put those into scripts and messaging and frames and then tested those and they scored incredibly high. So I feel very strongly that the more that we can actually design messaging and framing and, and again, uh, opportunities for people to be coming together that are not about um, trying to persuade, trying to you know, motivate, none of that, but more about recognizing that there's some core um, concerns, values that we share, and relying on a variety of messengers. We need everyone, right? And so I, I feel, you know, so excited about the whole uh, phenomenon of people who have been one thing, you know, like, um, and then they have some sort of transformation moment, and now they're, you know, something else. So, um, a, a farmer who then becomes vegan, or you know, a conservative Republican who becomes, a, you know, I feel like we we really need to be supporting those those folks who can work within their particular communities. We've been exploring the psychology of climate change on Climate One. Greg Dalton's guests today were Renee Lertzman, a climate engagement strategist and author of the book Environmental Melancholia, Psychoanalytic Dimensions of Engagement. Leslie Davenport, psychotherapist and author of Emotional Resiliency in the Era of Climate Change. And Bryant Welch, clinical psychologist and author of State of Confusion, Political Manipulation and the Assault on the American Mind. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.